Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I'm here with co-host Sarah Whitmire. Today we're talking about uh, end-of-life doulas and what they do and uh, their role in our society. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions by using the email address news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free. You can call 877-285-9348. And if you do, you'll be talking with Sarah and I and our three guests. We have Alvin Harmon, who's secretary and board member for the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance Board of Directors. Angela Hershey, who's a certified end-of-life doula, death care educator, hospice massage therapist in Indianapolis, and member of the uh, National End-of-Life Doula Alliance Board of Directors, and she's also the founder of New Dawn Comfort Care. And Emily Schwinder is, uh, Schwindler is the Director of Administration for ARN Funeral and Cremation Services. Sarah, I wanted to, to start the program with you um, and ask if, you know, you've just done some reporting on this. How did you get onto this story and why did you, you know, why does the topic appeal to you? Yeah, so we have a researcher whose name is Kathy Knapp and she and I often will toss ideas around. And she asked me if I had ever heard of an end-of-life doula. And I said, oh, my gosh, I just read a book about this. <laughs> and I said, we should really do something on it because I had never heard of it before. And, um, yeah, so then I think, Angela, we probably got introduced to you is, is how, it, how it went. And, I mean, this is really an incredible thing that I feel silly that I haven't known about because – I mean, Angela and Alvin, I mean, you could be both chime in here, but this is something that's been around a long time, and I feel like maybe we're only recently beginning to hear more about it since COVID. Mm-hmm. And Alvin, if we could go to you first um, to respond to that. I mean, how long have you been involved in this? And, and you know, it, it does seem like perhaps maybe it's just because we did stories on it, but maybe, uh, you know, for us it seems like it's something that, uh, we hadn't thought about or been talking about a lot lately. Is it starting to get uh, sort of revived, or is is it just always been there and just under the radar? Yeah, thank you, Bob and Sarah. So um, I, I personally have been, uh, I became a doula uh, seven years ago, and, you know, end-of-life doula, death doulas, uh, a lot of interactive terms. Um, but I will was concerned about how people die, um, not um, the specific disease, but how they, uh, what their space looked like, who was around them, who were they supported by, how were they being comforted? All of these things became uh, very important to me. And I began to kind of search out the role and was kind of led to a place where, you know, someone asked me, well, are you a death doula? And I was like, well, what is that? And as I began to research it, I was like, oh, wow, I I think I might be. And, um, you know, but to come to find out that uh, it it wasn't new, um, I think uh, Angela can probably give you uh, a a much more beautiful insight to to some of the history behind it, Uh, Angela. Yeah, thank you, Elvin, and, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation, Sarah and Bob. Um, so, yeah, Elvin, to, to his point, end-of-life doulas, I feel like are just simply helping communities remember the sacred art of caring for our 
still are dying and are dead. Um, it's a skill that's been handed down from generation to generation. Um, but sadly, we sort of forgot how to do it um, with, you know, modern technologies and hospitals and um, even in hospice care as um, supportive as those things can be. And there is a, a need and a time and a place for the medical systems to get involved. I think that at large, um, communities really need to understand and know the skills um, too to how to care for somebody who's dying. And so as doulas, we're simply helping people remember the skills and empowering them to be confident in caring for somebody who's dying. Before we get too far along, Angela, can you just talk about how death doulas are different from other members of the care team? You mentioned hospice. Obviously, we know medical doctors, but yeah. Can you can you explain the difference, please? Sure. Um, so end-of-life doulas are non-medical, um, holistic, end-of-life um, you know, specialists, um, we have we have skills and and understand the way that you know the the body shuts down. Um, we can help caregivers to sort of uh, understand these kind of things in, on a different level. So the best way that I like to compare like hospice and end of life doulas um, is that hospice is like the medical manager of the patient. Um, they're more focused on um, the trajectory of the disease process, how to manage pain through medication. Um, there's typically uh, a, a nurse involved who's overseeing the medical components, um, where doulas are non-medical. Um, and, you know, additionally, hospice is um, a medical service model um, that you have to qualify for. Um, there are certain criteria that patients have to meet, um, you know, being having a, a terminal diagnosis with a life expectancy of six months or less, which doesn't mean that patient's necessarily going to pass within that time frame, but, you, but your doctor has to certify um, that without curative treatment, um, that is the trajectory of your illness. Um, you also have to have a payer source. Um, and, you know, Time with hospice providers is very limited too. So, you know, on average, families only receive about an hour, um, you know, a few days a week. So I think it's on average like 15 hours a week of hospice care. Um, so family members are still the primary caregivers, you know. Um, so using utilizing a doula to me is much more accessible. Um, you don't have to meet any certain criteria. Um, you know, referrals are not needed. Your doctor ha doesn't have to approve that you meet criteria to work with a doula. Um, the only qualifier is that if you have a desire to plan ahead for your end of life or you're needing any sort of supportive services to manage your chronic condition or serious illness, um, a doula can, can help you. Um, and, and family can also, like I said, access us much more easily. We can um, you know, schedule our visits around their lifestyle and be as involved as much or as little um, as is needed. So we, and we also just offer such a, a more holistic array of support, um, more focusing on the holistic needs, the, not only just the physical, but the emotional, spiritual, and practical as well. Emily Schwindler is here as well, and Emily um, works in funeral and cremation services. So you have been a lot around a lot of people who are, you know, in the in the end of life um, stage. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, how do you overlap with people like Angela or like Alvin, who are end of life doulas? Right. Thanks for the question, Bob. Um, I'm a human. I guess is the answer. Um, we are all part of a continuum of care for a, other humans. And at the stage that I come in, they are already deceased. Uh, so it's kind of a hand to hand off of this person, this whole person. And I try to continue the care that they've been receiving through their home 
health giver or their doula or hospice to the best I can to support the family and the deceased person with dignity and respect. Um, I myself have a 94 year old grandmother that I am the primary caregiver for. So Angela has helped me personally with that situation as well. So I think anybody could benefit from speaking with a doula, even if you just have anxiety about your own death, which may not even be eminent, um, just kind of sitting with the reality of mortality and getting getting to be friends with it. How, how did you get involved in this, in the business and in caring for people who are, you know, at end of life or are grieving the end of a life? Well, I come from a long line of preachers, teachers, and farmers. So I guess just another extension of being able to support your community through um, doing something that they can't necessarily do for themselves and teaching people how to how to be a part of that and not be afraid of it. And it's a natural part of life and how to keep moving forward while embracing those natural phases that we're all going to have to go through. Alvin, when when do you see most people engaging a death doula? So I see most people engaging uh, usually, and this is just my personal experience, usually around about um, the time that hospice has um, been called in. Um, I have actually been on a campaign to start that process so much earlier. Um, and, and I would like to have uh, all doulas to be uh, engaged at, you know, early diagnosis. And that's that's what we're moving to. So um, some of our doulas now are being called in, you know, um, like for some dementia patients at about uh, one year um prior to what, you know, might be a period before uh, the disease begins to cause deterioration to the point of death. Um, also, uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, any type of uh, motor neuron type disease, um, these doodles are being called in, not just to support um, the, the patient, but also uh, the family member, you know, um, and I think Angela said it really, you know, really wonderfully because the training is to begin to uh, identify decline, you know, to know when things are getting uh, worse, to be able to make some additional phone calls. They recognize the biophysical, uh, psychosocial, spiritual aspects um, and provide services in that context to the family. So um, to get involved sooner rather than later actually can be of a great benefit to the patient and family members. We're talking about end-of-life doulas, uh, a concept that Sarah Whitmire just wrote a great deal about, and we have uh, WFIU has a radio, a couple of radio stories, WTIU has a TV story, and there's a story on our website about this issue, and we've brought three people together to talk about um, end-of-life doulas. Um, we have Alvin Harmon II, who's secretary and board member for the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance Board of Directors. Angela Hershey, who is an end-of-life doula, death care educator, hospice massage therapist, and a member of the National um, End-of-Life Doula Alliance Board. And she's also the founder of New Dawn Comfort Care. And Emily Schwindler, who is the Director of Administration for ARN Funeral, ARN Funeral and Cremation Services. I, I wanna ask all three of you about the fact that, you know, we're talking about this issue today. Death is actually a very difficult subject for a lot of people to talk about. And I guess I, I would like to ask all three of you to sort of, to, to comment on that. And Emily, you know, you sort of alluded to it before, I mean, it's an extension of of humanity. You know, everybody is going to die, and so why is it so difficult for us all to sort of acknowledge that and talk about it? Emily, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I think just because our natural state is to want to be alive and to be with our loved ones and be here. And there is such a big unknown 
when we pass over that threshold, we don't know what's going to be there. And that's scary for a lot of people. They don't want to dwell on it, think about it, um, even when they're facing a hospital stay or a surgery, their families will often say to them, oh, don't talk like that. Don't talk like you're ever going to die, which yeah. is unrealistic. Everyone is going to die. So, um, I mean, death is really my passion. I always advocate for people to go to a death cafe, you know, go talk about it with friends, go to a mortuary, talk, go to a cemetery, talk. I think getting it out there um, reduces the stigma and the fear surrounding it, surrounding it. So I'm really glad you're doing this show and kind of putting a spotlight on it, so to speak, um, because we have taken these uh, funerals out of our home and put them in the funeral home. We take our dead away immediately. We don't necessarily go and do the several day visitations like we used to. And we're just kind of keep tucking it further and further out of our day-to-day -day lives. And um, I think for those reasons, we don't know as much about it. We, a lot of people have never even seen someone die or seen a dead body at all. And so there's fear. I think a lot of fear around it. Angela, could you address the, the same issue? I mean, you, when you're working with patients, I mean, I know that you, you talk about these things with them. Yeah, I think everything Emily just said is so spot on. Um, um, yes, 100% yes. We just, we've, we've hidden it away, um, which creates more anxiety and fear around death so that when, by the time somebody is facing their mortality, it's, it's like this, um, you know, elephant in the room sort of feeling that nobody wants to talk about it, even though it's in the room, death is in the room. Um, so, you know, by the time somebody is reaching out to me, I'm just, I'm just so, um, I, I, I appreciate their bravery to reach out to somebody like me because I know no, I know nobody wants to hire a death doula, nobody or a funeral director, right? Like, um, we're, we're like the last responders and by the time we're getting called, something, something's really, um, going on, something really serious is happening, something very sensitive. Um, so I just always tell people and thank them so much for being so brave just to start this process and to entrust me with trying to help guide them. And, you know, one of the first questions that I ask is, um, have you, have you ever considered your mortality and what is your relationship to your mortality? And um, that's usually something that they've never considered. Um, but now that I've you know, brought it up, we're going to start talking about it and exploring that. What is their relationship with their mortality? And um, it, it just it just becomes something that brings, I feel like it, it brings them more appreciation of their life. You know, it, they can really look back and appreciate the highs and the lows and um, I mean, being human is hard. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I just think there's so much richness in the conversation um, itself. And I encourage families to talk about it at the dinner table. Um, talk about it at Thanksgiving and at the holiday. And I know it's, um, it is sort of a taboo topic, but you'd be so surprised the richness and conversations that come up when we start um talking about what matters to us and what's important to us. And that's really what it's about. I know in Sarah's stories, um, a lot of the patient that, that she focused on, and she can certainly talk about this as well, um, was talking about being the last gift, having you with her uh, during her, the dying process was a gift to her children. Could you talk about that a little bit? Mm, yeah, I, um, so I personally, I, I have a lot of, um, uh, in common with Kelly and her, her, one of her daughters actually. Um, so what even brought me into this work is that I supported my mother through her uh, end of life journey when she was Kelly's age. She was 45 years old, um, dying of 
um, an aggressive form of lung cancer, and I was 18 going on 19, and I also had a younger brother who was uh, five years old um, uh, going on six, which is one of the ages of her youngest daughter. So when we found each other, it was like, oh my gosh, I can completely relate (laughs) to a lot of what they were going through. Um, And so that gave me a um, just sort of a special bond with them initially too. Um, and I just using my own experience of witnessing my mother's decline and passing was that we, we did, we talked about it and my mom opened up to me about, um, being ready. And, um, even though we didn't like it, you know, we, we, we held on to each other and we talked about it and we shared ice cream, a uh, carton of ice cream over the dinner table and cried together. And I read those are the memories that memories that I remember. I remember sitting across the table with her and just facing this really important, big, life-changing event that we were approaching, facing. And so um, Kelly, you know, and I talked about that. And I, I did, I told her that the way you die um, is, is a part of your legacy and your, your kids will remember this. And she just, she's embraced that from day one. I think even before I brought it up, she has, she has recognized that, 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 that sentiment. Um, and so, you know, yes, does she want to get better? Yes. Does she want to find a cure? Of course she does. Um, but knowing that the, the odds, unfortunately, are not in her favor, she is more redirecting her focus, attention, and her hope on just making it so that her kids see her die well and um, with as much support and openness to the mystery, you know, not being afraid um, or as afraid. You know, there's a little bit of fear, of course, but I'm just so in awe of Kelly. <laughs> I, really I am too. I, I, I learned so imagine. much from her. She's my greatest teacher. <laughs> right. Really. I, you know, my clients are my teachers. I don't come in saying, oh, I, you know, directing traffic, so to speak. You know, they're really the ones teaching me. I'm just there to <laughs> witness and hold space and um, support in, in any way that I can. And I've told Kelly that I will 100% be there for her spouse and her kids, you know, after she is gone. Um, and that's an important aspect of the doula's role too, you know, because we do get so close to the family sometimes and we can help them to reprocess um, the story a bit to help them remember what parts they played a role in and how important they were in certain moments of their loved ones dying. So, um, yeah, I think that's maybe, uh-huh. maybe you and you and Alan can talk about that because that was one thing I was really surprised to learn is that even after someone passes away, you're there to support the family. Um, but so, so what is, how does your role change then in that regard? And, and how long do you stay around and help? You can go first, um, Angela. It, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it varies. Some families, um, you know, I, I don't hear from them. I'll check in and um, we'll sh- or we'll share like videos if we've if we've taken videos of their loved one and you know uh, text message and how are you doing and check ins and I uh, so we, I've experienced that aspect of it. Um, it's not always that I'm. Uh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a grief counselor and I don't, I don't, um, you know, take that title, but I, I call it grief tending and yeah, just helping to kind of reminisce about their stories of their loved ones. And, um, I received, I received a message not too long ago from a, um, a daughter of a mother that I supported, uh, with massage therapy and. Um, she was technically one of my hospice massage clients, but she was so grateful for just the, the, the added confidence that I gave her and helping her navigate how to communicate with her providers and um, just things that she should be looking out for with her mom. Um, 
you know, decline and just keeping like her mouth comfortable and teaching her simple things that she could do. Like she just, she came back and she reflected that back to me, just saying how helpful those things were. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when, when caregivers feel confident in what they're doing, it decreases their anxiety and their fear and it, and it in turn helps their grief. I mean, it doesn't take it away, but they don't look back and remember it as being so overwhelmingly scary and terrifying because they had, they had someone kind of holding their hand through it, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it seems so, like yeah. yeah, you enable the family to be more present and then you're handling, you know, some of the details yes. too, like, you know, helping with, you know, working with someone like Emily to do the funeral arrangements and those kinds of things too, I can just imagine would make your time richer with your with your family at the end if you're not trying to figure out what we need to do. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent is helping and helping them to be present with, yeah. is, with their loved one. One hundred percent. Alvin, I wanted to ask you about religion. How are end of life doulas and religion connected, or are they not? Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, they they can be or cannot be, and it is it really just um, talks. It's about holding the space that the 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 client needs. Um, some clients are very religious, um, some are not, but trying to be able to kind of hold that presence, um, uh, emotional support. Um, and however that may, so sometimes it just comes down to um, being able to uh, refer if you're not comfortable with a certain type of spirituality or religion, um, being able, the doula being able to refer to someone in the community or have close connections to that person's particular spiritual leader, um, just helping them, you know, support them in a manner that is comfortable comfortable for them. I mean, honestly, it's just all about, again, like I said, it's, it's how we die, banking that um, that experience um, as comfortable as possible. Uh, I was thinking about um, Bob's former question. You know, I, I constantly tell people, no matter how peacefully, tragically, wrongfully, prematurely, naturally, or intentionally, we all die. And having someone to be there uh, for for you in that space and that non-medical I, I thought about um listening to angela um you know the doula has an opportunity to build such a rich relationship with the family members that some of the medical team just don't have the opportunity to do and building that trust in that relationship allows the end of life doula to help uh support the family in making some of those critical decisions um i remember uh, one of the uh, family members I supported in the middle of the night, uh, their uh, caregiver gave me a call because um, uh, mother was actively dying. And she just completely forgot all of the information that um, the hospice team had provided her. And that's one of the most, uh, I feel like, important places that um, the the doula works with uh, these other other parts, these other portions, the spiritual team, the uh, the IDT with the hospices, um, uh, the spirituality from uh, the community, all of these parts uh, the doula works with. Uh, it's it's important that a person's faith uh, in whatever religion is recognized and brought to the front. It helps uh, communicate to them that we care and that uh, that we're concerned about you know all of those parts, everything. Uh, that concern them in their dying process. We're talking about uh, the issue of death, one of the issues that people don't really like to open up about today, but we're talking with three people who um, have uh, a lot of really good points to make and good things to say about dying well. So if you want to join our conversation, uh, you can join us, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send questions there. We did have one phone call, and it came from Norm Crampton, and Norm um, and um, the Reverend Donald Jones, who are here in Bloomington, have 
written a book that uh, I just want to mention the book title in case anybody wants to find it. It's called How to Have the Conversation, Talking with Family About End of Life. So I think um, I would I would use that as a segue into asking you know all any of the three of you that want to start the conversation. But how how important is that conversation? to have with your family when you know that, uh, you know, the end is near. Anybody yeah, want to so take that? I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 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 sure. So um, it is it's very important to have the conversation because um, you have to understand what someone really wants when they're dying, um, what type of setting they want to be in, um, and it actually helps alleviate a lot of confusion after the death. And, and I'm sure that uh, Emily has uh, seen some confusion in her line of work, you know, with the family after the fact. Um, being able to have that conversation, uh, you know, I've often told my kids and I prepared them one day I'm going to die. I want them to be comfortable with that. Uh, when I first got into this line of work, my mentor made it very clear to me that uh, we often even had a tough time saying the word die or death. We would say things like passed away or expired or has gone on, uh, one of those things. But, you know, I made it a point to be able to teach them to say death, to teach them to say die. It's not a bad word. I often communicate that, um, you know, life has its, its entire cycle, right? Birth, existence, and death, it's all the same part. Like a pencil has a point, the middle and eraser, it's all the same part of life. And um, being able to be comfortable enough to say, uh, one day I'm going to die, and this is what I would like, you know, uh, as a result of my death or as I go through my dying process is, is paramount. It just, it brings so much peace uh, not to just the patient, but to uh, the family as well. And I can only revert back to Angela's statement to uh, Kelly, just saying it was one of the greatest gifts she could give her children to teach them to die well. Emily, can you respond to that? I mean, have you seen this kind of confusion, you know, after the fact? Every single day. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's so unfortunate because just a few conversations could have made all the difference for most of these families. And I, I think we're, you know, even people always say, well, it's too early to think about it. I don't think that's true. It's easier to have the conversation now and get a, a gauge of how people are feeling about it, what they would want before you are in a situation where you're highly emotional and it's difficult to come up with what would mom have wanted? How does that align with what would help me heal? How do I reconcile that with what brother and aunt and whomsoever is part of the decision-making also wants? And it just really murkies the waters when we don't have anything written down and we haven't had these conversations. Even at the hospital, do we resuscitate them? Do we keep them on life support? What would they have wanted? And so I think the doula process also helps families talk through those scenarios. Well, what if, what if you were, you know, incapacitated? What if you couldn't eat for yourself anymore? What if you couldn't do this? And how would you want that handled? And being a third party that doesn't have as much emotion in the situation, you can kind of guide someone through those talks and, and then be able to relay to the family that this is something your loved one wanted. And this is, you can honor them by following through on that and that they don't have to question themselves for the rest of their life if they did the right thing or not. Yeah, Alvin, I'm, I know you and I spoke before, and I mentioned to you that um, just a personal story that m my mother recently passed away from pancreatic cancer. And when she was very sick and she, you know, she unexpectedly, though, sort of died, we didn't know what to do. And we thought, well, I guess we should just call 911. Um, and I, I imagine you see that kind of thing quite a bit. But I, I'm just curious, like, if, if families are continuing to face these kind of problems, why is it that we that we don't hear more about death doulas, that hospice isn't introducing us to death doulas. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, um, it, it has been a, a challenge for 
many hospices to uh, accept that role um, and for various reasons. Um, but I, I can tell you that, you know, it, one, as as a death doula, two, um, as a part of um, a, a hospice team here in Maryland. And I, I'm just so grateful that, you know, I think Coastal Hospice of Maryland is one of the greatest hospices in, in the country because um, we have adopted the, the, the mindset of the doula, the holistic mindset. And we're one of the first hospices actually to actually have doulas on staff. We hired doulas for this purpose um, to walk on at early diagnosis through the death process and into after for uh, grief support. Um, but they find it as a challenge. But, you know, I, I've been on a personal mission um, to educate hospices about the value of ha having a, a, a death doula and a life doula uh, as a part of the team. And it just benefits them in so many different ways. So, you know, heightened awareness, just getting out this information. And I'm so happy to now have this role uh, as a, a executive board member of the National End of Life Doula Alliance, because it allows my voice to carry that much farther uh, and to be able to communicate to these hospices, you, you're actually missing a great opportunity um, with, with all of these doulas. And we're up over 1,300 members now, just in, you know as a part of our alliance, um, but so many more who are out here that are doing the work. Uh, and adding them on to to actually support in places where unfortunately they just cannot. And if it's about the patient, if it's about patient care, uh, adding the the doula is is uh, is paramount. So uh, a couple follow ups real quick, Alan. Will you all do you assist people who are in the hospital, too, or does it just have to be in the home? And then the other one I wanted to ask you is just about the the cost of doing this, because from my experience, I know hospice was covered by insurance. But what about something like this? So two questions to follow up. Yeah, sure. No, no. So there is some support uh, in the hospital setting. It just depends on. So a lot of times we have some patients who are actually signed on to hospice while they're in the hospital. Uh, we have uh, a liaison that sits in here in Maryland. Uh, we have a liaison that sits in the in the setting who um, if a person is hospice eligible, um, they will uh, be able to uh, come on to hospice there. But uh, the doula, uh, we like to have involved, you know, far beyond that into you know, like a palliative care setting. So we can provide support there but into the home setting, um, we have hospice houses. We provide hospice support in uh, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, um, wherever. Actually, for those who actually uh, might be dealing with a homeless situation. So wherever a person calls home, hospice is willing to be there. Um, but uh, to be able to kind of go on with the doula and and have that support it lasts so long the doula has such a, a a unique ability to provide that service now as far as um cost as it relates to most doulas have their own practice and they have their own fee schedule set um but we actually our hospital is actually eats the cost um, of that portion because it's not covered by Medicare. Wow. Our hospice has been, they eat the cost because they want to provide this service uh, to the community because they want people to die well. And I'm so happy to be a part of a hospice that is that innovative and, and, and uh, is that forward thinking. Yeah. That's really rare. <laughs> <laughs> is that Angela? Yeah, say more. Yeah, um, I'm so glad to hear that, Elvin. Um, um, a part of my background has also been working in elder and hospice care. I worked in the, the hospice care industry for eight years before I became um, a doula and a massage therapist. So I saw firsthand um, how just how fragmented the, the system is um, and how overworked and misunderstood the intersection of health care and end-of-life care really is. Um, and that's why I really got into this work was, um, you know, I, I, I see the lack of death care education as a public health education crisis. Um, and it desperately needs to be addressed in most of our communities and, you know, especially communities that already lack access to resources and, and health education. 
um, communities that are marginalized and already receive less equitable support. Um, you know, so it's again going back to not everybody even qualifies for some of these hospice services, um, and so there's there's like such a disconnect between either you're not sick enough um, to qualify, and so what do you do then, or uh, you know. That, that I've seen that population of people that we would more consider chronic um, needing this type of education. And Elvin spoke earlier about, you know, we're really trying to get doulas involved in in these families' lives and people struggling with serious illnesses' lives uh, well before hospice is involved, um, because that pathway into hospice is not easy. So there's just such a big disconnect there um and the other thing i'll say is that um hospices i think in general are very adverse to working with doulas um, i think because a a, the the cost component so the fact that the hospice that he's partnered with is willing to eat the cost um is just great (laughs) you know (laughs) i'm i'm i just that is so rare um hospices are you know, paid by mostly Medicare dollars. Um, they don't get reimbursed for supportive services, um, such as even the massage that I offer. I, I contract with hospice providers, um, and they do have to pay out of their profits, you know, to, to pay for the massage services that I offer. Um, you know, so it is an added expense, but I see it as I try to tell them that. And, and I haven't been as successful, unfortunately, even with my hospice background and even being in the industry, um, it just hasn't caught on um, the, the fact that it could add such a value to their services, that, that this supportive service could help improve their patient outcome tenfold if they only understood that I'm actually helping them. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm there to help improve the communication between the family and their um, their multidisciplinary team. And when we improve that communication and we're meeting those unmet needs together, that quality improves. And they are, um, you know, scaled and rated uh, based on their quality measures. So I'll just add that little piece to, you know, attention hospices, please pay attention. <laughs> Yeah. And not not only that, Angela, getting involved, having a doula getting involved earlier rather than later, there's an ability to actually support, help the hospice to get um, uh, patients on earlier rather than later. And that's that's what they want, you know, because we're there to identify the decline in the community. If if a family member has uh, uh, some specific decline and you and as a doula we think that you know it may be time for hospice it might be a kind of a person or family that uh a hospice is never introduced to and you know the the doula has an ability here to support the hospice um not only by adding on length of days but as you said you know there's such relief there um, because they have limited time that they can sit with a patient, they have uh, limited resources. You know, you have to move to the next one and the next person and the next family. And the doula has the ability to still sit in that space and and support the information given by the uh, interdisciplinary team. So um, if a family member forgets, just simply forgets the instruction, the doula is there to support that. Also helping with, you know, advocation for them, logistical support. Um, you know, I, I help people with household errands. I help them run around uh, medical appointments, you know, different things like that. All of those things help support uh, not just the family, uh, but the, the hospice team as well. How many clients can you take at one time? So currently our our hospice has uh, and we're, we are intentional. We, we don't care that people know we have doulas. We are adamant to let people know we have doulas. Yeah. And we we average anywhere between 85 to 100 um, at one time, at any one time. So um, and we have currently four active doulas uh, within that program at our hospice. So, yeah. Oh, OK. I can't. um uh... 
I, I can't imagine doing this kind of work with a single person, let alone doing this all day. Um, yeah, yeah that, that actually brings me to a, a, a follow. And Emily, please correct me if I heard you wrong or misunderstood what you were trying to say. But I think you mentioned the fact that a lot of times these conversations go – the, the conversation about death and dying goes much better if there is a third party who's not as emotionally invested as a family member. And so to Angela and Alvin, I just want to ask about the emotional strain on each of you when you are working with these, these patients, when you are getting to know them and getting to know them at a, at a very vulnerable time and getting to know their families. How you know what? What's that do to your own sort of emotional well-being, Angela? You want to start? Oh, I guess I'll go. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, it's a really great question, and um, gosh, I I also work very intentionally, and you know, being um, an independent business owner, you know, I I have the flexibility and the privilege. And, you know, to only take on what I can take on at any given point because I'm human. I have a life too. Um, I, you know, the important thing is I'm very honest with myself about my limitations and my capacity. And I think that's so important because they're, you know, we're helpers. We, we, we have helping hearts and we want to help everyone. And, um, you know, I'm of no service to my community if I'm not well. So I have to keep myself well. And, um, you know, so I have, you know, I take good care of myself. You know, I, <laughs> I do what I can to to provide myself the self-care that I need. I talk to my partner, I, you know, and of course not divulging personal information about my clients. Um, but I have a community that I feel is very supportive. And the death doula and, or end-of-life doula community is so supportive. There's um, a, a very large um, social media presence for end-of-life doulas, and I think we just have such a great community um, that we learn from each other and support each other in our work that the medical system does not have in the same way, um, and we recognize how overworked the medical system is and how overworked hospice nurses are. and. Um, we sort of feel like we're kind of here waiting in the wings. Just we just really want to, you know, help them too because we we see how overloaded their caseloads are, where ours are uh, managed, you know, by ourselves. You know, we we have more management over how many cases we can take on typically, so we're more available to step in and support in that way. And I just wish, you know, I wish that would come along a little faster and maybe, you know, conversations like this will help to progress that. But I guess, you know, that's my answer is just, I'm, I'm also very intentional with my work and how I, how I, you know, take care of myself and, and how much I'm willing and, and have the ability to take on at any given time. It, we had a question from David who wants to know how he can get uh, in contact with a death doula, and he lives here in Bloomington. I mean, are there places, like if you're in a community and this is a new topic to you or one that you haven't thought much about, is there a place to go to look for um, someone in your area? Alvin? Sure is, Bob. Yeah, the, so the National End of Life Doula Alliance website is is a very uh, good place to go to find an uh, end of life doula. We have doulas actually listed by state. So you could go and look under your state and find someone that is close to you. They'll have their city listed, uh, their contact information. And, you know, it's just best to give them a call, have a conversation, uh, you know, do your due diligence and, and see if this is a doula that uh, will actually work well for you. I should say, Bob, I know there are a couple death doulas in Bloomington. Bob and I recently met with the hospital and they were talking about that. So there are folks here. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, and yes. I, go ahead, Angela. Um, I I also have a um, a Facebook a public Facebook group called the Indie End of Life Collective. I know not everybody's on Facebook, um, but that's pretty much where we're the most active right now. And it's um, it's exactly 
for people specifically in, the, in, in Indiana who are looking for end-of-life care resources, such as um, end-of-life doulas or just any, have any questions about anything related to death, dying, and grief, or just even want to share their experience or their um, they want to learn, they are seeking mentorship um, from somebody like me. So um, that's something that I created in, in 2019, right before the pandemic, crazy timing, but um, to try to, to try to offer that because you're right there. It is hard to find. Uh, there's, there's no one directory that has all the doulas listed. Um, Nita's done a great job of providing a directory. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great place to start too. We don't have a lot of time left, but I know something that um, maybe we mentioned at the beginning of the show was like being, this idea of being certified. But Alvin, can you talk about some of the different courses? Just we only have about a minute left, but some of the things that you are trained in because you're not exactly certified. Correct. Yeah, correct. So um, what you're actually doing is learning how to have uh, a family centered approach as, as a doula, um, understanding the holistic care. Um, uh, empowering doulas to uh, promote uh, uh, informed decision making, um, really understanding the the non medical uh, part of it. Um, you know, we are non medical providers. Uh, refrain from giving uh, medical advice, uh, specific action of course or treatment, um, imposing your own beliefs. These, you know, all of these core values that we try to. Uh, to communicate through um, any specific training um, that you might go to is is what we're looking for when you know we're asking for members of the uh, the National End of Life Doula Alliance. Um, and you're right, there is no specific certification. But what we do is um, we ask for those who would become a member to take a proficiency test, um, just because we want to be sure that they do understand our scope of practice, our model, and the type of uh, doulas that we would like to have. Uh, and, and their ability from from whatever training they've gained. Okay, thank you very much, Alvin Harmon, Angela Hershey, and Emily Schwindler. As always, our program will be archived, so you can check in to any of it that you might have missed. For Sarah Whitmire, our producers Kathy Knapp and Nathan Moore, and engineer Mike Paschkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.